we have to look at the reality that you can't have every single person with a runny nose staying home. Welcome to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Mark Bonta, a podcast that examines health issues with a critical eye grounded in scientific skepticism. Disclaimer. The Ditch the Lab Coat podcast is exclusively meant for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as a substitute for professional medical services, including medicine or nursing. It does not create a doctor-patient relationship, and any reliance on the information provided in the podcast or linked materials is at the user's own risk. The content is not intended to replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The expressed opinions belong solely to the host and guests, and they do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hospitals, clinics, universities, or any other organization associated with the host or guests. I am excited to delve right into today's episode. This is the third and final part of a three-part series whereby we've gone through COVID-19, past, present, and future. Today, we finalize by talking about the future as it pertains to how we're going to live with this pandemic, the downstream impact of all of we've done, how we're going to apply what we've learned to other fields, and what we think the future is going to look like, both in healthcare, at home, and for those around us. Joining me in the studio today, again, is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. He's the head of infectious diseases at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. This is a giant hospital conglomerate. It's soon to become the largest hospital in Canada. Not only is he the head of infectious diseases there, but he's also supervised the growth and development of many medical students and residents. He's worked as the clerkship director for medical students in internal medicine there for close to 10 years. He supervised countless residents and fellows, and he is a smart, fun guy to have in the studio. I've known him since he was a resident. We actually trained alongside each other, and this guy was whip smart back then. He's only more experienced and smart now. He's known to most of us in Canada as one of the faces of the COVID-19 pandemic in the national news, being interviewed almost daily to share his expertise and wisdom. What I love about him having him on the show is he's able to speak in a language that all can understand, and he's not afraid to ditch the lab coat and get right into how he really feels about things. And in our last episode, where we talked about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic, he was not afraid to criticize some of the things that he said early on in March 2020 about masking and social distancing. And he's someone who's very nimble and able to apply the evidence and experience of today into his job and duty as a healthcare provider in the field of infectious diseases, also as a parent and partner. And hopefully the information and wisdom that we share in today's episode is something that all of you can apply and will help to give everybody a better understanding of what we've learned from this pandemic and how it's going to help to shape things in the future. So without further ado, let's get into the studio and join today's episode on COVID-19, the future with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. Our third of a three-part episode on COVID-19, we've talked about the past, kind of reliving that experience four years ago now, the present, how we're managing things. And up next is the future. 
right? So there's a lot of things to consider about the future of COVID-19, vaccines, our response, how we're going to do things differently or the same if this were to happen again. I think it's a good place to start with the fact that you have a runny nose today. I do. And look, I I think that in the post-pandemic reestablishment of population immunity and, uh, you know, being exposed to the viruses that we didn't see for a good three years, this is some perfect immunology. And uh, my immune system is getting a run for its money, but doing a good job. So is it COVID-19 that you have? Is that why you have a runny nose? (laughs) I have no idea, my friend. I don't uh, test myself at this point. Uh, It's a mild viral upper respiratory tract infection. And uh, I'm actually on the mend. I I was uh, not feeling great a couple of days ago. But uh, yeah, I always get a little bit of post-viral cough as well. But overall, doing better. So you're not going to work, right? You're working from home for 14 days? No, absolutely not. My, that's the other, the other issue is that, you know, in the real world, that's impossible to do. Now, look, if I was highly febrile, if I was vomiting, that kind of stuff, I wouldn't go to work. But I think that uh, we have to be realistic that uh, it's not easy to just uh, not go to work when uh, people need help. Uh, and it's not just me, it's anybody. You, people can't just stay home for 14 days. But aren't you, uh, you know, we're, you're wearing a mask though, right? And self-isolating at home? Uh, no. Uh, and, and in fact, usually it's the, it's the children who bring this into the house. So, you know, Mark, you have four kids. I have three. So I think we are both quite familiar that if somebody gets sick in the house, it's just going to happen. You can't avoid it. Yeah, but aren't you contagious and seeing immune suppressed people? Yes, it is the case. And the thing is that I think we have to, we have to balance that, right? So look, if, if the day that I would have been the most symptomatic, if I had a high fever, I wouldn't have gone to work because yeah, you're, that's, I think something you can do, but I think it's, it's unreasonable to try to, you know, make it so that you're ensuring zero contagion before going to work. And we have to also remember that I think that the term immune suppression has been used as a bit of a umbrella term, whereas people who are immune suppressed still are able to fight off viruses and, you know, just being in the hospital alone, they're being exposed. So I think there's a certain level of pragmatism that we have to balance between, you know, safety of of our patients, but also the idea that if you don't have staff, they're not going to be looked after and that's also unsafe. It's, It's a fine balance. So let's clarify that. I have a lot of people explain to me that they're immune suppressed or the reason that they're wearing a mask or not visiting certain people are because those people are immune suppressed. We both work in hospitals that have cancer patients. So I've seen people that have zero immune system because they're undergoing a bone marrow transplant for leukemia, right? And so they have zero immunity. But is that immune suppression or if you're taking some steroids, some prednisone, let's say, for a condition like Crohn's disease, are you immune suppressed with that? Like, What does immune suppression mean? This is a great point. I think that what we have to remember is that immune suppression is not just one thing. It's a spectrum. You mentioned bone marrow transplant and that person is of the most immune suppressed that we see. And in that situation, yeah, there's other precautions that are taken that we don't take with other patients. But if you're on steroids, you're also immune suppressed, but to a different degree. And I think that this is something that was lost in the discussion in the last couple of years that people said, well, I'm immune suppressed, but what does that mean? Are you immune suppressed because you're older, because you're on steroids, you're a transplant patient? And the other thing I want to keep in mind is that if you're immune suppressed, that doesn't mean that you have zero immune system in most cases. So for example, a transplant patient who was quite immune suppressed in 2018 was still going to the mall 
sometimes they got sick, but they could get better as well. It's not like your entire immune system is knocked out. And that's very, very important because in 2018, in 2015, anytime pre-pandemic, it's not like we were seeing people who had, say, transplants dropping like flies from respiratory viruses. Yes, they can get sick, but it's not, I think, the way that it was being portrayed, especially on uh, things like formerly Twitter. So is there evidence and data now that certain patient populations, like you identified some immune suppression raging from people who are immune suppressed from a bone marrow transplant or a liver transplant or taking medications to formally suppress their immune system to elderly people, right, who have an older and less responsive immune system. Is the data out that shows certain people are at a much higher risk of dying of COVID-19 or other respiratory ailments? The answer is it's still coming out, but I think that from this season, uh, the data, it will be retrospective. But I, I think a couple of common things come out. Still, the people who are at the highest risk of hospitalization and death from COVID is age. Age is by far the most uh, important risk factor. Once you start to get above the age of about 70, the risk starts to significantly climb. Then you have, you know, the profound immune suppression, like uh, people who have a hematologic or a blood cancer like lymphoma on chemo bone marrow transplant. So these patients are, yes, they're the ones that are, are the, uh, when we rarely see severe illness, these are the patients that we tend to see it in. But an important note is that even these patients are sometimes getting COVID or other respiratory viruses and they get better. Okay. So I think that it's not a death sentence for these patients to be exposed. We want to try to minimize where you can, but you don't have to, to the same degree that we did, let's say in 2020. And it's a balance, right? It's a choice. If you're immune suppressed or identify as being immune suppressed for whatever reason, you're older, you're on some prednisone or you have a, a liver transplant, you can choose to change certain things about uh, how you're going about your day, exposing yourself to crowds, et cetera, your hand hygiene. But unfortunately for most people, there are some things they can't change, right? Like working from home and some people don't have access to sick days, et cetera. How do you see the future of work is going to evolve? You know, we went this one extreme where everyone stayed home and collected income, right, for all intents and purposes by a Canadian government. But then other people were delivering the groceries and food and essential services that we needed. Do you see us going back to business as usual? Do you see workplaces becoming more understanding and empathetic towards the, the common cold? I think that I would ideally want to see things back to the way they were in 2018 with some caveats. And what I mean by that is, I think that yes, we did go to the one extreme where everyone was encouraged that if you have a runny nose, you shouldn't be coming to work. Well, that was happening. It's still happening in many places and then places don't have staff. So obviously that brings in a new type of uh, risk, a new type of cost, if you will. I don't mean my money costs. I'm talking about just like your actual uh, operating cost of an organization, whether it's a hospital or whether it's uh, something else. So I think that one thing to really consider, look, if you have a fever, if you're vomiting, if you're having diarrhea, I think it's a good idea to stay home just like you would have uh, pre-pandemic. And I think that's something that we should be telling people. But look, if you have a bit of a tickle in your throat, I don't think it's necessary to stay home. And we have to have to uh, kind of balance that. I do think that uh, employers who are pushing people to come to work, even if they're on their deathbed, I think that does need to soften a bit. But I think we have to look at the reality that you can't have every single person with a runny nose staying home in jobs that they can. And also very good understanding for people, like you mentioned, that can't stay home. 
they can't because they can't put food on the table or they're in a job where it just, you know, they might lose their job, cash jobs, things like that, especially in new immigrants. So these are things that we didn't think about, I think, very closely uh, when we were making our previous interventions, non-pharmaceutical interventions against COVID. And so you kind of talked about the range of, of tickle in your throat to on your deathbed to like what you have now, which is after you are sick, you now have a runny nose. So when is peak contagion? Can you actually transmit a virus when you're not having symptoms or when you just have that tickle in the throat? Is it 10 times more contagious when you're at home throwing up? Like what's the peak contagion? It's a great point. And the thing is, is that obviously it varies from pathogen to pathogen, but for the most part, you're going to be, let's say for respiratory viruses, I'm going to talk in general here, not just COVID, but oftentimes at the time you're starting to develop symptoms, you're already contagious. And then it's a quick peak. You know what I mean? And by the time you get symptoms, you kind of have a peak, say 24, 48 hours. And even though, yes, technically at day three, day five, you might still be contagious. We saw a lot of that people doing these daily COVID tests until the test was negative. Yeah, you are contagious, possibly at even day six, but then you have to balance that is that the amount, the degree of contagion is significantly reduced since you were first symptomatic or the day before. And the thing is that you not being there multiplied by 10,000, by 100,000, that has a huge impact on the workforce. And again, like when you have one theme for me going forward is the idea of unintended consequences and a risk-benefit analysis. You have to look at that. And I think that a lot of that was lost in COVID when we were having a laser focus on one thing. Yeah, like it makes me reflect on uh, when this all went down. One of my side hustles is ski patrolling. And uh, so I ski patrol and I work with a lot of first responders, you know, paramedics and fire members. And one of the guys that I worked with, Rob Gilmore, was a military captain or command, like whatever, high up in the military, one of those people overseeing troops in Afghanistan. Et we had wonderful conversations out on the hill about like a military mentality to solving problems in healthcare. And when this happened, I think on March 15th, I was driving back from a day at Toronto General Hospital, day two of the pandemic, kind of freaking out, am I going to die from this? And I called him and I said, Rob, what's your advice for how to approach this, right? I carried a lot of leadership roles and positions. I oversaw residents, fellows. I had, a, I had a learner who actually was pregnant at the time and I had to make a decision about her safety to be in the workplace on day two of the pandemic. And he said, look, this is going to be a long haul. This is going to go on for years. And so what I recommend that you do is look at what we do in the military, which is in wars and in battles, we often burn through all of our resources at the outset, and then you're done. But you need to plan for the future. You need to recognize that you're going to burn through resources and don't burn through it right away. And we did that with COVID and our response to COVID. And one of those places was in healthcare, where we started putting this 14 days on isolation. If you feel kind of funny, stay home, don't come to work. And then by wave two, it got to the point where we had to make a decision about if patients are coming into hospital, do we want them to get admitted and see nobody? Because there's no, no nurses, no doctors, no personal support workers, no nobody, because they're all at home self-isolating. Or we can acknowledge that uh, people might have a tickle in their throat or might have a runny nose days after they were very sick, but they're going to be wearing masks, they're going to be wearing gloves, because you're either going to be seeing somebody who's mildly sick or nobody at all. So I think that philosophy and approach to the workplace is something that applies everywhere. It's simply not sustainable to have people stay home for weeks at a time and get paid because they have a tickle in their throat because we never did that before. 
And so it's nice to see us adjusting to things. But in the future of COVID, when you look back to some of those uh, pandemics and epidemics before, right, the Spanish flu, it wasn't the first wave that killed everybody right? It was a successive wave. So now that we're four years into things, and I don't even know what variant we're on, is it potentially possible that a wave is going to come of this super lethal Ebola strain of COVID and it's going to wipe us all out? Is that possible? So in medicine, we never say never, but I think that is highly, highly, highly unlikely. And when you look, a lot of the things that we've seen with this pandemic are what have happened in previous pandemics. You have a virus that kind of comes on the scene. There's a, what we often term the first pass effect. You're seeing this virus hit a population that is then, you're going to see a lot of manifestations of severe disease, but you're also going to see a lot of unusual manifestations. So you may hear a lot of people say, well, COVID isn't a respiratory virus. It's a full body virus. It can cause meningitis. It can cause myocarditis. Absolutely it can. Any virus can do that. In this field, in infectious diseases, I've seen, for example, flu cause myocarditis, flu cause meningitis. These things happen, but they're much less likely. It has a primary respiratory type of target. I bring that up because on the first wave, we were seeing crazy, weird things that I hadn't seen in a long time. We were seeing clots. I'm sure you saw that too, Mark. Uh, uh, pulmonary emboli, things like that. But as the waves went on, those things became less and less common because of two things. It's kind of the arms race between the virus trying to kind of stay alive and, and propagate, and then humans having their immune response to the virus. So you see time and again, that as time goes on, pandemic viruses, respiratory ones, tend to get less virulent with time and tend to get more contagious. And part of that is because it's just a kind of evolutionary pressure. Now, it didn't seem like that when alpha came around, the third wave, and when delta came around in subsequent waves. But the point is up front, you do get kind of like a step up in virulence, but then it starts to get better. Now we have had Omicron since December of 2021. We can say BA2, XBB, JN1, whatever you want, but it's all Omicron. And that variant stability is kind of like the, it's like a sweet spot for the virus where it can still spread. It's still able to evade immunity, but it's not killing the host. So it's still able to propagate. And that's what happened with other coronaviruses as well, apart from SARS-1, which is a bit of a, an exception. So I think that's an important thing for us to realize that, yes, variants previously meant that, oh my God, we were going to see a terrible wave. That wasn't the fact after Delta or so. When we saw Omicron come in, it's all been kind of waves, but it hasn't been disruptive like the first couple of waves were. So when we test, right? And one question I'm going to ask you is, when do we stop testing? is right now in the hospital setting, right, which is where we both predominantly practice, we still swab people and there's a triple swab. Like right now, it's cold and flu season for RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, for influenza A and B, and for COVID-19. And oftentimes when people are having respiratory ailments, it'll either be RSV or COVID-19. When people just feel like crap and have diarrhea and muscle aches, it's either flu, COVID or nothing, right? Something else that we're not testing for. But we do that in the hospital setting because knowing what we have decides what therapeutics we might give, right? And for some of these viruses, we have certain antivirals, you know, Paxlovid you've heard about and remdesivir, obviously you prescribe. And then there's rules for different treatments like steroids and that. But these are for hospitalized people who are sick, who need oxygen, who have low blood pressure, all this kind of stuff. 
But does it matter to test people at home in the community? Like who really cares what they have? Should we care? This is where I was actually, I mentioned this when rapid testing first became available. I think I mentioned this in the last episode too, but I think the overall answer is no. Yes, look, if you, there's going to be the odd person that wants to know whether they have COVID or not. But I think the thing is that at this point, when you look at respiratory viruses, they cause something very similar, like, you know, an upper runny nose, sore throat, bit of fever, sometimes a cough. And they all are a milieu that act very similarly. And thankfully, the vast majority of us, including older people, including people with comorbidities, it's a bit of a nuisance. They get better and it's gone. So I think that testing doesn't change anything because if you have a sore throat, it's not a big deal if it's COVID versus rhinovirus. The concern that I have is that the positive test can often, it changes people's behavior in a way that can be counterproductive. So for example, you have somebody that they feel unwell, they have a fever, they're coughing on the first day, it's not COVID. Oh, you know what? I'm going to go into work. Well, you know what? It's not COVID, but you could still have something on day one that could pass to a cardiac patient to make them sick. You should probably stay home, right? And the second thing is that I find that on a social level, people testing for COVID, then somebody's positive, it makes everybody nervous. And then people start to miss engagements. They don't want to do this. And I just think that it causes a lot of torment and turmoil that's not necessary. I think we should be focusing testing where it can make a difference in the hospitalized patient where therapeutics could change. And I think on a societal level, like on a public health level, it is important for us to know trends in the population, but that's not something we need to be doing at home. So sidebar, what's your take on when you're hosting a party, right? A kid's event usually. And this never used to happen, but now you get the text message with some information, right? So-and-so is feeling a little under the weather, or my rat is still slightly mildly positive. And it's more of a statement that defers to you as the host to decide on whether or not they can come. Because for sure that's happened to you. Happens to oh, me all, it, it drives me crazy. So crazy too. what's your take with that? Do you respond to that text? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that because it's generally friends that are coming. So it does show me this is exactly a situation that I think uh, it arises because of testing that never happened before. And I just uh, tell people that, look, I leave it up to you, but I'm welcome to have you. In pre-pandemic, we had kids' birthday parties and every kid's running around with a runny nose, coughing. I think that's a risk that we all take by having kids and having parties. And that's part of living in a, a functioning society. So I always say, you're welcome to come. I don't want you to not come because of this. If there's a high fever, if there's vomiting, if there's diarrhea. Okay, don't come. I think that's reasonable. But in most other situations, come. I would be happy to have you. So there will be a time when it's okay to throw up on the cake again. Because in 2017, <laughs> I, I was at a kid's birthday party and the, the kid whose birthday it was threw up on the cake. And it's just funny, right? Oh, you know, a bunch of us wow. might get sick, you know? And, but <laughs> oh. in, in 2021, you threw up on the cake, persona non grata. But now it's back to like, oh yeah, it's probably sick. And like, you know, maybe, maybe they shouldn't have come. But uh, it's going to be normalized soon. So back yes. to kind of the purpose of testing in the hospitalized patient is we have all these therapeutics, which frankly don't do much, right? Like I'm just being honest, remdesivir, yeah. Paxlovid, tocilizumab, they help uh, because they're not curative. But there's a lot of talk and conversation, especially with the AI rush, that we're going to come up with monoclonal antibodies that are going to fix all of our problems when we get viruses. Are monoclonal antibodies, like what are they, how do they work, and what, will they get rid of all viruses? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is no, but I think monoclonal antibodies, they're actually, it's a, it's a pretty cool type of intervention where when they work properly, you have an antibody is like a, a protein that is made by the immune system that's able to do basically two things, either attach to a virus and basically pull it out of the system, whether it's in your nose or there's the bloodstream and eliminate it. Or it's uh, antibodies can sometimes also tag certain types of like parasites, for example, certain bacteria. It tags it for the immune system to then go, oh, that's abnormal. I'm going to eat it up. There's other things, antibodies. I'm, just, I'm simplifying. So monoclonal antibodies for viruses is basically you're giving somebody an antibody against an active virus in your body, and it's helping you by clearing the virus. And I think that these things definitely have a potential for future for people who are essentially immune suppressed, very sick with viruses. But it's not a silver bullet because oftentimes it's not the anti or not the virus that's causing you to get sick. It's that the virus has activated an immune response that's now become overzealous. It's kind of overcompensating and it's what's causing the inflammation in your lungs. It's what's causing the inflammation of your liver. So it's not as simple as just kind of taking a virus out of circulation. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated coming into infectious diseases. You have your infectious agent plus the host response and both of those things can cause illness and we have to keep that in mind. So isn't there going to be a future then where we can have a combination of monoclonal antibodies and immune suppressive treatments like steroids, right? Which kind of melt that overactive, overzealous immune response, as you labeled, and where we just don't get sick anymore. Right where we never even get a runny nose and a man cold. Like, is that is that a potential future? <laughs> it could be. Look, and, and when, when I say future, like you know those shows where uh, people are like a half android or they, they upload their their systems into different shell bodies. Maybe there, but I think the thing that we have to remember is as unpleasant as a cold is, right? It is still your immune system responding to a pathogen and forming a book in its immune library, which then protects you later on. Okay. Regardless of this fights that you see on Twitter, the immune system is something that needs constant low grade stimulation to kind of strengthen itself. And I think that, you know, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm saying go out and get Ebola. What I, I am saying is that for the general kind of everyday things that you see, especially viruses, bacteria, we're constantly exposed to these and that's how the immune system learns. And one of the unintended consequences by stopping you getting sick unless you're able to AI the entire immune response is that it might make it so that the you don't develop immunity normally to things and then you get sicker down the road. I think with these types of things, you always want to consider risk benefit and downturn uh, unintended consequences. So from a, a risk benefit and downstream impact, if I like video games and I choose to spend all of my money on the latest technology and latest video games, that's great. But if I spend all of my money there, I'm not able to pay the bills. I'm not able to heat my home. I'm not able to put food on the table. And so I got to decrease the amount of money I spend on video games. If you look at what we're pouring into our pandemic response, which is ongoing, right? We're still testing people. We're still prescribing antivirals. We're still looking into biologics and therapeutics, but we're not spending as much money, attention, and time on important things like the mental health impact of the lockdowns and the closures, the surgical wait lists, right? People weren't getting screened for cancers and people were delayed for their hip replacements, knee replacements. If you look at how our healthcare money is being spent in Canada, right? This is the Canadian issue. Do you think we should spend nothing, a little bit less about the same or more energy and time on COVID-19 as we currently are moving forward? 
I think the answer overall is less, a lot less. And I think that that doesn't mean that we don't have any kind of focus on COVID-19 and respiratory viruses, but it needs to now be put into context. One thing I will say is I find that a lot of the response, a lot of the antivirals testing, contact tracing, that was all done with the assumption that the situation would stay the same forever. Right? It never was going to do that. It was always going to be a situation where the virus was going to become less and less of a severe thing for people overall in the population and less of a, an impact. And back when, you know, tocilizumab, prednisone, all that stuff really worked and helped, it's hard to know now, man. Like, you know, an old person, they don't get pneumonia anymore. They, they get fever, dehydrated, and they fall down. Does steroids really help that? I don't know. So that's kind of like what I think. I think that now exactly what you mentioned is that we have to get back to kind of the areas that we really need to focus on. Mental health, surgical wait times, our healthcare system that was already, you know, stumbling before the pandemic. We need to have less blame put on the people to not get sick and actually have a system that can sustain the demands that the population puts on it. So I think that my overall answer to that is that COVID should be, become part of respiratory viruses, not something that you need to look at specially. And now put our attention into aspects that in the long term, they're not as interesting, but things like diabetic control, cardiovascular risk management, wound care, schooling, all these things have to be now focused on because they all went to the wayside in many ways for the last two years. So vaccines were developed and uh, mRNA vaccines came to be. I don't want to talk about the future of vaccination for COVID-19. That's obviously an evolution. And uh, that's obviously also uncovered the two schools of thought, the personal choice that I'm protecting others and not having that much thought into the administration of vaccines. Like certain people need them and are going to benefit. Certain people don't need them, but it's a statement, right? But from all that energy that went into vaccine vaccine development and the mRNA vaccine introduction here, what other viruses are going to benefit from our vaccine development? Like, are we going to be able to eradicate things like HIV? Are we going to see other kind of childhood viral ailments be uh, cured with vaccine development? Like, what good has come from all of that energy we placed into vaccine development and new technologies? Yeah, I think this is great. Like, you know, one thing I do want to mention is that remember that vaccines are awesome. I'm an infectious disease doctor, but we do have to treat vaccines like medical treatments. We should scrutinize them with structured clinical trials. And this is one of the things that I think we didn't do very well going through COVID. But one of the very, very big things is, look, we have the ability. I mean, I know there was a lot of funding, but we have the ability to put towards for something cool like mRNA that we need to obviously work on to improve. But yes, it could mean things like HIV could be controlled in a way that you don't have to take a medication medication every day. Viruses like dengue worldwide causes millions of people to be sickened and, and die. Ebola in, in parts of Africa, here in Canada, RSV, influenza. These are all things that if we found a vaccine that was able to you know, provide robust immunity, that maybe you wouldn't completely eliminate the virus, but you would definitely make it so that even older individuals aren't getting sick. And have, that's obviously a huge strain on the healthcare system. These are things I, I see as future directions. Now, I do want to say that you have to have a bit of realism. I doubt that we're going to see the elimination of things like influenza, RSV. I think that we're just going to have a step up in control, and certainly vaccination could be a part of that. 
Yeah, so the future of vaccination is ideally that we're able to make viruses, like think about those common respiratory viruses that you labeled, less bad, less likely to kill people, land them in hospital. You're still going to get sick, but not as sick. So hopefully we'll have something gleaned from that technology. Now, what if you go home tonight and you're scrolling on your news feeds, right? I don't know what an infectious disease specialist looks at, but maybe you're looking for global trends. And uh, you start to read that in, in some far off country, there's people who are bleeding from their eyeballs and falling down. And it looks like another virus, right? However it was created, that's a whole other topic, comes to be and there's some virus somewhere else and it looks like we're going to be in for another wave of something, another pandemic. What do you think we need to do differently at the outset if we repeated COVID, but with something different? Yeah, this is tough. I think that like, this is exactly the scenario that people talk about is that, oh, if if it were something much more deadly than what would happen, right? And there are pandemic playbooks. And I think that we have one for the SARS-1 commission that was kind of thrown out the window during COVID. But I will say that I am worried that similar things that happened that weren't handled well in COVID would happen again, because it's very difficult to now have one kind of source of information where people are kind of in a good faith, non-political or apolitical way giving information. We're in a very polarized environment. Social media was allowing us to really kind of amplify many things. People were confused. But at the same time, you can't be an iron-fisted authoritarian government that locks people in their houses against their will, which we, we saw worked for a bit. But, you know, was it right? And I think the answer is no. So I think that we do have to much better, if I can be a bit general here, look at the cost-benefit analysis. Again, when I say cost, I don't mean money, Just or in certain cases it is money, but look at all the factors. And I think that the COVID ended up being a bit of a technocratic type of approach where we kept just like deferring to doctors, deferring to people who said, the epidemiologists who are looking at numbers, where they don't have, they have the expertise of looking at trends. They have expertise of looking at patients at the bedside, but we don't have expertise looking at long-term economic damage, which in turn has health consequences or, you know, world events, geopolitical stresses. We don't have that. This is the job of the politician to make these decisions. And I think that if there's something like that, where cost benefit was right at the forefront made in all of these decisions, I'm not very hopeful, but I think that's one of the biggest things we could do better. Well, it's kind of like in some ways we're better off not knowing you know, go back to the Spanish flu and, and go back to the time before the internet and even telephone. And uh, all of a sudden, people are getting sick. And uh, here, that happened, even though we saw warning signs, but we didn't know how accurate those warning signs were. We didn't know how they were being manipulated. We didn't know how they were being sensationalized. And things happen so quickly, and there's a diffusion of responsibility, right, in terms of who is making decisions. And people were scared. They were emotional. There wasn't much rational, objective decision-making happening. I don't know how helpful it was to know what was coming. Yeah, Maybe it would have been just better off saying, like, man, a lot of people are sick. And uh, figuring out after the fact that there's this new thing going around, because maybe the outcome would have been the same. But I do feel that education is key. And just like we're having a conversation today and sharing information with a listening audience, I must say that the population by and large became quite savvy when it came to viruses. And granted, some of that savviness was wrong. 
some people didn't understand, but we understood more, right? The whole touching your face and nose a lot, the whole transmission routes, the whole degrees of symptomatic spread, kind of droplet particulate matter spread. And in some ways, the next response would be better off if another pandemic came being a massive educational campaign and then letting people do what they want right? Like if you're not comfortable going out to the restaurant or bar, don't go. And general rules for employers, et cetera, but empower people to make decisions on their own. The same as they do with things like smoking or or drinking or speeding in your car. You know the dangers, you know what this can do. Go make a choice like we do for everything else. What are your thoughts on that? It's a very good point. Uh, And I think that one of the things is that if you look at that document from the previous SARS commission, one of the things they talk about is that you basically have to move hell and high water before you shut down society. And if you shut down society, the first thing you should be thinking about is how and when you can open up as quickly as possible. And I think that we were so obsessed with numbers that we were kind of, you know, look at these case counts every day. Okay, let's shut down. Let's respond to that. And I think that, yes, in the future, when a pandemic happens, people are going to unfortunately get sick and die. And I think that we can kind of arm ourselves with the tools of what to do to reduce that risk, not eliminate it. But I think that in the future, exactly, allowing people to make their own decisions. And like, we might have briefly a slowed transmission by, say, shutting down society in multiple countries, which I still don't understand how it happened so easily. The big thing, by the way, I think it was when Italy did it. When Italy did it, that's what actually then spread to the Western world. Because we were seeing China did it and it seemed like, oh, okay, that's new, but it's still, we know things are different over there, different uh, governing body. But when Italy did it, uh, that's, I think that it was like the floodgates for everybody else. But I think that it was easy to look, oh, maybe we stopped it. Maybe we stopped the numbers, but we didn't think about what's going to happen three years down the road right? And we're reaping what we sowed then. And I think in the future, being as least disruptive to the population is a a much better way to go. Well, it seemed noble and altruistic at the time. And the message was, we're protecting everyone. We're protecting your kids, your grandparents. But when that information became clear that we weren't, we were very slow to change. So on that whole decision-making algorithm, you commented to me at the starting that with lots of kids in the household, right, kids are a, a hub for viral activity. And so a lot of viruses, you know, come from kids and they get transmitted in the household and in schools. When do you think, if ever, schools should be shut down in the future? And what is your take on kids being the hub of viral spread, right? Kids were often the blamed, right? When new waves came out, it's because they opened schools. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, that was horrible. And I think that, you know, again, this was the root of the messaging is that we were blaming people for getting sick rather than kind of giving to this is what this is. It's going to spread. It's going to be very difficult to stop that. These are things you could do to reduce your risk. I don't think that we should have ever closed schools. Look, I think that I can understand that like, okay, something's coming. We don't know what's going to happen. We can close schools for a couple of weeks just to kind of get things set. But it's just that the long-term consequences that we are going to be seeing for years to come was not worth the, what we thought, what we perceived as a decrease in, in viral transmission. I don't think it helped. And the folly of us going in that direction was because we were so focused on trying to stop transmission of a respiratory virus. And we were basically looking at all each other as guilty parties, right? So then, oh, schools is viral activity. We got to stop it. I think that was all rooted in the 
the misguided messaging. So to answer your question directly, though, I don't think that we, beyond maybe try to regroup for a week or two, I don't think schools should ever be closed for an infectious disease pathogen. If you don't want to send your kid, that's a different story, but I think that that needs to continue. Well, what if you work in a school, right? What if you're a teacher or custodial staff, educational support worker, and uh, you know, you're afraid that you're working with this hub of viral activity? What's your recommendation to them, even if there are safety measures that they can do to make themselves feel more comfortable? So I think that let's look at, like, let's say, what we call, quote unquote, essential workers, I think everybody has an essential role to play when you're doing a job in society. And I think that there's obviously nuances to that, but like, I couldn't say that. I couldn't say I'm not going to go to work. I performed a vital role, I think, during the pandemic. And I think teachers perform a vital role. Yes, there's risk there. I understand the fear. I had it myself. But at some point, to get a little bit corny here, I'm not a religious guy, but uh, if you've ever heard of the Bhagavad Gita, which is uh, it's a Hindu type of uh, scripture where one of the guys, the mentor is talking to the student warrior about duty. And I think that's something that indirectly was kind of, you know, really taught to us as kids growing up that there's certain things you just got to do. You might not like to do it. There's a risk involved, but you got to do it because it's the right thing and you're helping your community. That's the type of thing I think would have helped your community. And I knew going in as a doctor, yes, I was going to be at risk, but I had to do it because this is what I chose to do with my life. And I think it's a similar thing with teachers. I don't want to trivialize the fear, but I do want to kind of emphasize the important role that teachers play in our society and still do for our kids and the next generation. Excellent. As, as we wrap up here, you know, we've covered a lot of great topics today. You know, the future of the virus, our response, uh, therapeutics and treatments, how our vaccine development will help other areas, uh, some general tips to help you manage subsequent waves and, and uh, kind of understand some of the misconceptions out there. If there was a one line or two lines that you could share with people to take home as a specialist in infectious disease who's been active in COVID-19 for the future of COVID-19, what would you say? I would say we need to kind of step back and be a little bit humble, maybe drop a little bit of the hubris when it comes to infectious diseases. I think that what a lot of the misguided types of interventions that we had were based on the idea that we could conquer, we could beat this virus. And we did a lot of things in that idea, which then ended up having either short-term or long-term negative consequences. So I think that in the future, we should understand that pandemics happen, people get sick, and unfortunately people will die. And what we need to do is try to kind of empower ourselves with tools and decisions to help to reduce our risk, you know, work together, understanding that not everybody can do it and realizing that this will pass. The only thing that we can do is make things worse. And also just to re realize that if we had not done all of those NPIs, but then had something cool like a vaccine to help reduce the risk, it would have been a really good highlight of human innovation. So I think that's where the positive could have been. But unfortunately, that was overshadowed in my mind. It was awesome, but still overshadowed by so many of the negative things that happened during the pandemic. And I really hope that if we have a future one, that we're able to not go down that same path and just have the highlights of the human innovation. Thank you. And what I love is if I was recording this live in person, I would still have you in my studio with your running nose. Um, oh, thank you, man. 
yeah, the only reason this is being done virtually is because we live in different cities, but I would welcome you in there. And I would trust your decision making that you personally made to uh, come with a runny nose to my studio. And <laughs> hopefully people have absorbed that today and can digest what we've talked about today to make uh, good decisions moving forward as we learn to live with successive waves of a viral pandemic. So thank you again for coming today and for wrapping out our three-part series on COVID-19, the past, present, and future. Thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you, and I agree. We need to see each other in person soon. A big hug for each other, okay? Yeah, but not with that runny nose. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. The third and final part of a three-part series whereby we've relived the COVID experience, going back to the initial declaration of the pandemic in 2020, talking about how we've applied this to our active and current approach to COVID-19 in hospital, masking, vaccinations, treatments. And in today's conversation today, again, with my colleague and expert friend, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, we talked about how things are going to look in the future, not only as it pertains to COVID-19, but to future pandemics and the simple fact that we need to learn to live with viruses. The impact of lockdowns, as we're learning, has been staggering on the collective mental health, educational development on many small businesses. In fact, when you look at the polarization between people, the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, the maskers and the anti-maskers, it's really separated people. But when you look down into the granular parts that led to this divide, many people's livelihoods changed, right? If you ran a business and you were forced to shut down, that's a huge impact on you personally and professionally. If you live in those blue-collar jobs, in those service industry jobs, those gig economy jobs, those Amazon delivery driver jobs, where you couldn't work from home in the comfort of your slippers and gown on Microsoft Teams, but were forced to be out there around people, interacting with others, and putting yourself at risk of picking up a virus, that's quite unfair to unmask some inequities. Hopefully, we've taken a lot from this collective experience to apply it to the future. Hopefully, we're going to have a more sober mindset when it comes to approaching subsequent pandemics. Hopefully, we're going to be a little bit more nimble and adapting to the evidence in real time to minimize this divide that happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. The coming few years are definitely going to be very interesting. You know, just thinking back on my experience as a frontline healthcare provider, a lot of people didn't come to hospital early on in the pandemic because they were afraid. And then when a lot of people came to the hospital and to clinics, once things opened up and virtual visits were done, there were big lineups, there were big waits. And what I'm concerned about is things like that little lump that you might have had on your arm. Has that now evolved into a metastatic cancer because you put off getting care? What's going to happen to all of our kids who were kept at home, virtual learning in kindergarten? The future is definitely going to be interesting. I think we're going to see some pretty upsetting and sad things, frankly, when it comes to cancers being diagnosed at a later stage, when we look at the mental health and economic impact of the closures. But hopefully we can adapt nimbly and apply different philosophies and attitudes to future pandemics, along with how we're approaching the current pandemic here. Hopefully, COVID-19 will just become a quote-unquote other virus that we learn to live with, take some hauls, blow our noses, stay home when we're really sick. But when we have that lingering cough for a few weeks, just get out there and engage in society. 
Obviously, if those of you in our listening audience are immune suppressed, are getting chemotherapy from cancer, are recipient to bone marrow transplants, obviously you're going to play things out differently. And I think if you have friends and family members who would be at risk of picking up severe infection, then you'll take the steps that we've all learned throughout this pandemic to ensure that you don't get them sick. And also to all people that they seek out healthcare advice professionally when they think that they need it. Thanks again to Suman Chakrabarty for taking the time out of his busy schedule to attend this discussion today and to share his wisdom and to the team behind the Ditch the Lab Coat podcast. This couldn't be done without all of you. And thanks to our listening audience for tuning in. Looking forward to seeing you in our next episode, which releases every Wednesday morning. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Lab Coat with Dr. Bonta, the home of science-based skepticism. Tune in next Wednesday for another healthcare conversation. For more information, please visit labcoat.fm.